All right. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and grab that. Open it to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Last week, uh, we started a uh, new sermon series for the fall that's going to take us up to Advent, and that is on the chapter of Romans 8, just digging in verse by verse uh, through this chapter. Last week, we covered verses 1 to 4, and this morning, we're going to cover verses uh, 5 to 11. So as we're getting our uh, Bibles out and ready to go, let me pray, and we'll jump in. God, we just want to come before you right now um, and acknowledge to you um, that we are here to hear from you, Um, that we have our Bibles open and we're ready to to listen and to understand uh, the truth that you want us um, to think about and hear today. We ask that you would illuminate this to us, that we would be able to understand exactly what you're trying to say to us so that we would leave here this morning encouraged, built up, uh, with a stronger faith and a a bigger view of who you are. And so, God, we we ask that you would do that work right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, You know, years ago, when I first started in ministry, I was in college ministry, and it was a blast. Absolutely loved it. Missed it in so many ways. Uh, I'll never forget this one summer. We were doing this summer Bible study. And I think we were studying through the book of James. And uh, the, the, the night was over. Our Bible study was over. And people were kind of chatting in the room. And this girl came up to me. And she had just gotten finished with her freshman year at Virginia Tech. And it was the summer. And she was about to go into her sophomore year. And she's like, hey, can I, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. Never met her before. And um, she said, hey, so, so here's the deal. Um, I, I just got done with my freshman year at Virginia Tech. And I just, I want you to know I partied a lot. Um, and I did a lot of things I know God wouldn't be happy about. And I was like, okay. And, and I thought that where this conversation was going was she was just feeling maybe some guilt and, and wanting to kind of, you know, repent and, and, and experience the forgiveness of Jesus and all that. And then she goes, and here's the deal. I'm going into my sophomore year and I'm going to keep doing that. I said, okay, all right. Thank you for your honesty. Appreciate that. Honesty is always better than, than you know, fake, you know, facade. Uh, and she goes, so, so here's the thing though, but I, I grew up as a Christian. I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. My parents go to this church and, and, and they're you know, really devout followers of Jesus. My faith is really important to me, she said. And she said, in my uh, freshman year at college, I was pretty vocal about my faith to people. So she says, so here's what I'm wrestling with. Here's my question, okay? She says, so as I go into my sophomore year, I know these are the things I'm gonna do. So here's my question. Should I be less vocal about my faith? Because I know I'm doing things that Christians shouldn't do. Those were her words. <laughs> so I was like, it's a first. All right. Um, thought about it for a second. And I said, you know, I think we have two options. I think there's two options here. Here's the first option. I was kind of blunt with her. I said, option number one is you're actually not a Christian. Because there are things that you're doing that you know are displeasing to the Lord and you don't care. 
Option number two is that you are doing things that are displeasing to the Lord and you want to keep doing them and you've kind of decided I'm going to keep doing them, but the spirit of God that's in you is gonna gnaw at you and you're gonna feel this guilt. And I was like, I think that's actually why we're having this conversation right now because the spirit of God is kind of gnawing at you and is gonna grow you out of this and help you to see this is not the right way. I was like, but here's what's not an option. What's not an option is that you are doing things that you know you're very aware that they're displeasing to the Lord. You don't care, like there's no conviction, and you're still a Christian. I was like, that is not an option on the table. You know, I think one of the issues that we have in in Christianity today is So we believe this glorious truth, right? We talked about it last week in Romans 8, 1 to 4. This truth that if we are in Christ, that there's no condemnation for us, that Jesus has covered our sins, past, present, and yes, into the future. As we continue to mess up in different ways, he has covered those by his blood. So we believe that, and that's what we preach. And so, but here's what we do. We go, okay, so Jesus has saved me. I get to go to heaven. Everything is covered. And for the rest of my life, I'm gonna do my best to live in the way that he would want me to live. But when I don't, it's cool because he's covered it. When I do, great job. And that's kind of the totality of the Christian life. The problem is, that's not what the Bible teaches, as we're going to discover today in Romans chapter 8, as we hit verses 5 to 11. All right, so here's the thing. I want you to have your Bible on your lap, open, Romans 8, or your app, open, Romans 8. And as we go through these scriptures, I want you to read them as I read them. And as we refer back, I want you to read them and make sure that what I'm saying is square with what's lying in your lap there in your Bible. Okay, so, so let's do this. Last week we hit verses one to four. And we talked about this doctrine called justification. All right, big word, but it's basically this idea that God has done something for us that basically justifies us in God's sight. We are no longer going to pay the penalty for our sins against God, our sins in the past and our sins now and our sins in perpetuity, Jesus has covered. He's justified us. That's what we talked about in Romans 8, 1 to 4, right? Romans 8, 1 is this like, it's probably the most glorious verse in the Bible, right? Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, this is such a radical statement. This idea that Jesus has completely covered us from our sin, and it's even more radical when we understand a biblical definition of sin. And we spent some time last week digging into that. What is a biblical definition of sin? You remember, we went back to Genesis chapters one to three. And we learned that, okay, when God created us, he gave us this purpose, right? And he said, Here, here's who you are. You are an image bearer of God. 
meaning that your purpose is to live your life with God at the center of everything. Your purpose is to reflect the image of God, to reflect the glory of God. But when we hit Genesis chapter 3, we saw, right, that the serpent deceived Adam and Eve and said, listen, God, listen, if you do the thing that God told you not to do, then you will be like God. And so guess what? You will no longer have to live your life with God at the center, right? Being an image bearer of God. You can now live your life with you at the center. You can be an image bearer of yourself. And this is the very thing that the serpent tempted Adam and Eve with. And this is the first sin. This rejection of, God, I'm gonna orient my life around you and a taking on of, I'm going to orient my life around myself. Remember, Paul, in Romans 1, he defined it this way. He said in Romans 1.25, they, that's us, that's Adam and Eve, right, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature themselves rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen, right? That's how Paul defines sin. They oriented their life around themselves now. They worshiped themselves, the created things, and no longer the creator. Which means that the biblical definition of sin is it's not just about our behavior and the things that we do, but it's actually the condition and motivation of our hearts. So remember, Jesus like blew the door open on this in the Sermon on the Mount. He's like, yeah, the law says don't commit adultery, but I say that if you even lust after that person in your heart, if it happened here first, then you've already committed that sin. Yeah, the law says don't murder, but I say if you hate that person in your heart, then you've already committed the murder. And so the biblical definition of sin that we see here is when our hearts are oriented around ourselves, we do the things that we wanna do rather than our hearts being oriented around God. And so here's why that makes Romans 8.1 Glorious, because there is not one person on this planet who can claim that they're without sin. That's Romans chapter three, if you study it. Not one person can claim that they can stand before God and not deserve condemnation. And so Romans 8.1 is saying, listen, there is now no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. Justification. God did something to justify you for your sin. Romans 8, 3 says, God did what the law could not do, namely do something to your heart. And we spent all of last week just looking at that glorious truth. How did Jesus accomplish this through the cross? And so if you missed that last week, I just, you need to go listen to Romans 8, 1 to 4, because it sets up so much of what we're gonna be talking about 
today. And the glorious truth of Romans 8, 1 to 4, is that Jesus ends up giving us his righteousness. He takes our sin and gives us his righteousness. But here's the deal, and here's what we're going to learn today, is that you can't have the righteousness of Jesus without his spirit. Jesus is going to give you his righteousness if you're in Christ, but he's also going to give you his spirit. That's Romans 8, 5 to 11. So let's read that together. Romans 8, 5 to 11. We'll see what it has for us to learn today. Verse 5 it says this For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. For those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. All right, a lot to unpack there. We're going to dig in. If last week we were talking about the doctrine of justification, this week we're gonna talk about the doctrine of sanctification. It's another big word, but it's essentially a word that says that, listen, if you belong to Jesus, if he has covered your sin, if you trust in him, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, then he will grow you. He will begin a process of change in you. It will happen because he gives you his spirit. That's the doctrine of sanctification. So there are two truths that I want to pull out of this text for us to look at this morning. Two truths. So let's do this. Truth number one is this. From Romans 8, 5 to 11 is this. Truth number one is this. The spirit of Christ will lead you to live differently. The spirit of Christ will, will, not might, like take it to the bank. If the Spirit of Christ is in you, you will begin to live differently, right? One of the things that Paul's trying to argue for here in Romans 8 is that what it means to belong to God, what it means to be in Christ, it means that he has saved you from your sin, and it also means that he has given you his Spirit, and that Spirit will lead you to live 
differently than the way that you used to live. And Paul describes these two different things, right? You can live in the flesh, that's kind of the old way of living before you knew Christ, or you can live by the Spirit. I think that's one of the things, or one of the mistakes that we make in our faith today is is we just kind of believe that uh, salvation just means that God saved us from the judgment that we deserve. And, and yes, that is a massive part of what it means to be saved, that, that God has rescued us from being judged and punished for all of eternity. But salvation also means that we are being saved day after day after day as Jesus Christ, through his spirit, begins to change our hearts. This has always been a biblical idea of salvation, right? This is not just a New Testament idea. It's not just a Romans 8 idea, but the Bible always thinks about salvation as God bringing you into his family and making you his own forever and also changing you. Uh, I want you to see this passage in uh, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36, I'll just read it and pop it on the screen um, so you don't have to turn there. But I think this is one of the clearest passages we get that shows us this has always been God's idea of salvation. This is what God says he's gonna do. This is a prophecy about what Jesus will do for us in the future. Hundreds and hundreds of years earlier in the book of Ezekiel 36, verse 25, the prophet says, I will sprinkle clean water on you And you shall be clean from all of your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. All right, I'm going to rescue you. Verse 26, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, right? I'm going to take the cold, dead heart out of you and put a new, alive heart in you. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Like, who's the person that's performing the action in this text? Who's the person that is causing someone to do something? God is saying, I'm gonna put my spirit in you and I'm gonna cause you to do these things. So as we go to Romans 8, Paul's just explaining what that means and what that's like. So if we look at verses five to eight specifically, it says that we can set our mind on the flesh or we can set our mind on the spirit. And basically, to set our mind on the flesh is to live in a hostile way to God. It essentially means to live in a way where my heart is oriented around myself. Or I could live according to the Spirit, where the Spirit is now going to begin compelling me, causing me to live with my heart oriented around God. So the question is, okay, what does that look like? Because salvation is going to save you from your sin and then launch you into a life where God is slowly, over time, progressively changing your heart from being oriented around self 
to be orienting around himself. And so what does that look like? I actually think the Apostle Paul, uh, in another letter, the book of Galatians, is really helpful. I think he gets really specific on what this looks like. So if you go to Galatians chapter 5, what Paul's going to do is he's going to give us a list. He's going to say, this is what it looks like to live in the flesh. And he's say, this is what it looks like to live in the spirit. And he gets super specific. All right, let me read this for you. So if you go to Galatians chapter 5, starting verse 19. Paul says this, now the works of the flesh are evident, colon, now a huge list, right? Here's some examples. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. These are a list of the works of the flesh. Now, notice how Paul calls these works. He says these are works of the flesh. What does it mean to work for something? Or better yet, why do you work for something? Well, I work in order to earn something that I need, right? I work a job to earn income to provide for myself and my family. And so the question is, what am I working for through these works of the flesh? What am I trying to earn? And I think Genesis chapters one to three teach us, as we studied that last week, that what Adam and Eve were after when they committed that first sin, was some sort of greater life. That serpent made them believe that, listen, God is holding out on you, and if you become an image bearer of yourself instead of an image bearer of God, you're going to have an even greater life, you're gonna be equal with God, you're gonna have all the things that God has. And so I think that the works of the flesh, what are we working for, what are we trying to earn, what are we grasping at? I think it's greater life. We are looking for life. We live in a sinful, broken world. There's really hard, it's really hard to live in this world. And so what happens is we are seeking to make things better. We're trying to satisfy some sort of longing in our hearts. And so we get really angry and frustrated when things get in the way. And that's the works of the flesh. I'm gonna live my life for myself. I'm the one that gets to define what's good and bad. I'm the one that gets to decide what is true and false. And if you disagree with me, I'm gonna get angry. There's gonna be division. I am entitled to all the things of the world. And when I don't have it, I'm gonna get jealous. I'm the one that gets to decide what sexuality is or what this is or that is because it's all around me trying to figure out how to earn, how to work for better life. And so when that's what we're doing, we see these works of the flesh coming out, grasping at life, trying to escape death. And what happens when you have billions and billions and billions of people, all of us included, living out, working for the flesh? It's just brokenness. But Paul continues, 
If you go to verse 22, Galatians 5, he says this, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, interesting, Paul said these were fruits. On the flesh, he said those were works. And he says, but the fruit of the Spirit is this. Now, what is a fruit? Well, a fruit is evidence of something that is already there, right? Fruit is something that is produced. Work, I'm trying to work to produce something. Fruit is something that has already been produced because something already occurred. These, this list, the fruits of the Spirit, is evidence that life is already in you. Listen, how do you live How do you react to things in this world when you're feeling secure versus when you're feeling insecure? When you're feeling insecure, life is stressful. You're hypervigilant. It's really easy to get angry. It's really easy to, to let divisions occur, right? But when you're feeling secure, when you're feeling like your needs are provided for, it's much easier to be patient and gentle and kind and give people the benefit of the doubt, right? And what the fruit of the Spirit is, is God has given you life. There's no condemnation over you. I am working on your heart, reorienting your heart. You're gonna live for all of eternity. And so therefore, the fruit of that belief, the fruit of that reality in your heart is you're going to display these things. Paul is saying that if you trust in Jesus, there is no condemnation over you. I have put my spirit in you, and that spirit is going to begin to produce these fruits in your life. So that leads us to truth number two. Truth number two is this. You are not a Christian if there is no evidence of the spirit in you. And we're like, well, that's blunt. But it's exactly what Romans 8 says. Right? We read that in verse 9. Romans 8, verse 9. It says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. To have the spirit of Christ means that God is going to begin to do this work on your heart. Go back to the conversation that I had with that girl from Virginia Tech. And I said, hey, there's two options here. Either one, you just don't know Christ, so you're perfectly fine living this way. Doesn't bother you. Or you do know Christ, and the Spirit is gonna gnaw at you. And I think that's why we're having this conversation right now. But what's not an option is that we can somehow be saved from our sin. We can accept this grace from God. We can be in Christ and have completely zero conviction over the sin that we're aware of in our life. Because the Spirit is inside of us. But here's the caveat. Here's what I got to say. Because we see this in verses 10 and 11. What I'm not saying is that the minute you come into faith in Christ, there's no condemnation that now you're perfect. 
verse 10, right? Says, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. So you now have the spirit of God in you, but it is in a sinful body. And so he's saying, hey, he's gonna begin that work of change in you, but there will be a day in the future, verse 11, right? Where Jesus, whether we die or he brings us home or uh, he returns, he's gonna resurrect our old sinful dead bodies into new bodies without sin. And so one day we'll get there and Romans 8's gonna discuss this idea. It's what we call glorification in the future when he brings us home and he rids our bodies of sin once and for all. So what we're not talking about here is perfection. What we are talking about here though is God doing a work in us that is evident. And some of us it's real slow and some of us sometimes it's quick there's this great uh, gift that I, I saw get passed around years and years ago, and I, I sh- totally should have put it on the screen behind me, uh, but it's this gift, and it just says sanctification. It's trying to uh, show you what sanctification is, and it's an old man trying to get on an escalator, and the escalator is headed on up, and uh, he falls, and so he's kind of tumbling down the escalator, but as he's tumbling down, he's actually making progress going all the way up. Because the Lord is growing him. And sometimes we stumble and we're falling down and we don't do it and it's not beautiful and it's not pretty, but God is still at work in our hearts. And so the question that we have for ourselves this morning is this, what do we do with these truths from Romans 8? And I think it's simple. I think as followers of Jesus, we need to examine ourselves. Right? It's easy to make fun of that girl that I talked to from Virginia Tech. I mean, yeah, it was a bit on the extreme end. That's why I love college students, all right? They just, they're super honest with you, all right? They just cut through everything, I love it. But how many of us think in similar terms? I know this isn't pleasing to the Lord, but hey, I'm gonna presume upon his grace, he's covered it, I'm gonna do it anyway. How many of us begin to operate according to the flesh when we're aware of the ways in which the Spirit is trying to grow us. Minimize our sin. I think we underestimate how easy it is to be blind to the works of the flesh in our lives. There's a fascinating story in 2 Samuel 23. Uh, It's King David and his mighty men. So King David had 30 mighty men. They were like his special forces. All right, this is his best warriors. And they're in this stronghold in the caves and they're battling the Philistines who have the city of Bethlehem. And David, while they're in the stronghold, says, I just, I'm thirsty. Like I'm longing for some water. And so three of his mighty men go out of that stronghold, fight through the Philistines, find a well at the gate of Bethlehem, fill it up with a cup full of water, fight their way back, get to David and bring him water. And David grabs that cup of water and pours it out. Because he says, he, he, it was this camaraderie with his mighty men. He's like, you risked your lives for me that I could have water. There's no way I could drink this water. Like I'm here with you, we're in this together. 
And so it was just this moment of camaraderie and this moment of David honoring his mighty men and valuing their life. Now, one of those mighty men, uh, one of the 30 mighty men that were on, in David's team was a man named Uriah. And that might be a name that you're familiar with. One day, while the men were on the battlefield, David was at home and he comes out onto his porch and he sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. He summons for her, sleeps with her, and gets her pregnant. He finds out later that Bathsheba's husband is Uriah, one of his mighty men. And so David creates a scenario on the battlefield to have him killed. Later on, this man named Nathan, who was a prophet, comes to David and he says, David, let me tell you a story. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has thousands and thousands of flocks and herds of, of lamb and sheep and all this stuff. And this poor man has this one little lamb. It's the only thing this poor man owns and he nurtures that lamb and has grown up with that lamb. It's like his own daughter. But the rich man had a guest come in town and he didn't want to kill any of his thousands of lambs that he has, so he stole from the poor man and grabbed his lamb and killed it and served it to his guest. And David gets enraged with anger and he says, this man must be brought to justice. He shall die for what he's done. And Nathan goes, you are the man. And David knew what he was talking about. How easy is it for us, for any of us, to go from operating by the Spirit to operating by the flesh like that? How easy is it for us to be hyper aware of how everyone around me is operating by the flesh and totally blind to how I'm operating by the flesh? A mark of a believer in Christ, someone who has been saved by Jesus, is when they become aware of their sin, there is a hatred for it. And a willingness, a desire to do anything they can to repent of it. A thankfulness for others who come and, and point that out to them and help them see it. Not because we need to prove ourselves to God. Not because we have to clean ourselves up to be accepted by God. No, no, no. Precisely because God has already rescued us and has put his spirit in us and is now changing us. And so as Christians, we should make it a regular practice to ask questions like, where do I see the fruits of the spirit in my life? And where do I see the works of the flesh in my life? So like the way I engage other people in the workplace. Do I see more fruit of the spirit? Kindness, gentleness, self-control. Or do I see more works of the flesh? Rivalry, dissension, jealousy, anger. The way that I 
communicate about politics or the way that I talk about hard, disagreeable topics in our culture? Do I see gentleness and patience and kindness? Or do I see rivalry, dissension, division, anger? With my spouse, in my marriage, with my extended family members, with my kids as I parent them, my neighbors, do I see fruits of the Spirit? Or do I see works of the flesh? Paul doesn't caveat the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. He doesn't say, you know, well, you can display all these, but in this scenario, it's okay to, you know, dip into the works of the flesh a little bit. None of us will be perfect in these things. Perfection actually really isn't the goal. God will achieve that in us. The question is, if the spirit is in me, is he slowly reorienting my heart? Do I see evidence of that? Because to live the Christian life is to be okay with and to confess our weaknesses and to lean on God and others to help us grow. Yet so many of us live the opposite. We think it means to project strength. And so next week, as we dig into Romans 8, starting in verse 12, I think we're going to go 12 to 17 next week. We're going to dig in more practically. What does it look like to live by the Spirit versus living by the flesh? What does it look like to see the evidences of the Spirit in me and, and, and live according to it? Follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit in my life. So we're going we're gonna to dig into that more practically next week. But for this week... I think the question that we just need to ask ourselves humbly is, do I see evidence of the Spirit in me? Am I grateful for others who help me to see that as well? Because, friend, you need to know, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. There is nothing to fear with confessing your weaknesses. There's nothing to fear with confessing your sins. There's nothing to fear when you say, I need help, I'm struggling here. That right there is evidence of the Spirit in you. Confession of weakness, confession of wrongdoing, confession of doing something huge that you messed up doing is evidence of the Spirit, not the projection of strength. So let's lean on each other. Let's lean on Christ as he does this work inside of us. It's a good work that will lead us to joy. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful that when you save us in and through Christ, you don't just change our standing before you. You don't just change this label over our head of being someone who is saved or not saved. You actually begin to do a work inside of us. I'm thankful for Ezekiel 36 that says that, that you're gonna put your spirit in us and cause us to walk in your ways. But God, sometimes looking for the evidence of the Spirit means that we have to do some humbling things. Like confess our sin or ask for help. 
God, we live in a culture that just, we hate asking for help. We hate needing other people. We are told all day long that we should be strong enough within ourselves to do everything. And God, that's not, that's not how you made it to be. So God, I pray you would help us to be humble, willing servants of Christ who gladly accept the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our lives, but also the ministry of others as well as we seek to follow the Spirit instead of our flesh. And God, we're so grateful for your patience with us that you don't demand perfection of us day one, but you're slowly reorienting our hearts, growing us, being patient with us like a good father. So we love you, God. Help us to follow your leadership in that. In Christ's name, amen.